Hi, this is Danielle. Uh, I have some very sad news, if you have not already heard. Um, Guy Haynes was kind enough to send me a text uh, to uh, let me know uh, that Catherine Lee Scott posted on her Facebook page that her dear friend, Lara Parker, who of course played Angelique, um, passed away on Thursday, October 12th. Um, I'm heartbroken to hear this news. Uh, Lara's portrayal of Angelique was a, a huge part of many of our childhoods and has stayed with me all these years. Uh, I did not know Lara personally. I met her once briefly at a Dark Shadows Festival, and I had the good fortune uh, to interview her on this podcast last year, and she was wonderful. Her thoughts and the thoughts she shared uh, were insightful, intelligent, uh, and she stayed on after the episode and chatted with me in the Zoom. She continued to talk with me. We talked about teaching and kind of commiserated over teaching college uh, and grading essays. And she asked me about what's this Penny Dreadful stuff all about? You know, she was asking me questions uh, about the podcast. I just remember after I hung up my, I posted this on Facebook, my first thought was, wow, she's so cool. She really was. So I want to express my deepest sympathies to Lara's family her many friends, including her Dark Shadows castmates, and her legions of fans. Um, please bear in mind um, that this episode you're about to hear with Stuart Manning was recorded, uh, gosh, about a week and a half ago at this point. I'm recording this on October 16th right now, so please bear that in mind going into this show. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. In just a couple of minutes, you'll be hearing from my guest today, Stuart Manning, returning to the podcast to talk about the groovy new issue of daytime gothic. But before we get to that, I have a little bit of news for you. A reminder, Catherine Lee Scott and Marie Wallace will be appearing at Lindhurst on October 21st and 22nd. And they're going to be doing a meet and greet twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday, 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m., both days. And you don't want to miss that. There are spoilers here for those who listen. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am your hostess, Danielle, a.k.a. Penny Dreadful, and I am really excited to welcome my guest back to the podcast. He's back with a new issue of Daytime Gothic. I am speaking, of course, of Stuart Manning, who is the editor and publisher of the gorgeous charity fanzine Daytime Gothic and the exciting upcoming daytime gothic issue too. Stuart, of course, published the popular UK Dark Shadows journal zine and ran the Dark Shadows news page for many years, and he continues to run it through its current iteration through social media. Stuart has also worked on a number of official Dark Shadows projects as writer on Dynamite Comics and writer and producer on several Dark Shadows big finish audio dramas. Welcome back, Stuart. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. I'm kind of uh, amused to be back doing... Uh, doing this in all senses, but um, yeah, <laughs> fun. Um, we made it. Great, great. I, you know what? I was telling you right before we started recording. All I've been hearing since that uh, daytime gothic issue one came out is just positive reviews and raves. I bought an, an extra copy and sent it to my friend Eric, who loved it too. And I just had Danny Horn on the podcast, who wrote a piece for the first uh, issue, and he's uh, he's excited to be back for for issue two and. Uh, Everybody, everybody's just raves about this, so it's great that you're bringing this back. Let, let's first, I want to, I want to ask you before we get into this. You mentioned to me over email that you're currently accepting submissions and that you're you're particularly looking for fan art and fan fiction. So, can you talk a little bit about uh, what you're looking for and what the deadline is for the submissions? Yeah, uh, well, the, the sort of deadline's probably going to be, I would say, late November, early December. 
And there's a lot of features lined up. There's uh, things I've been working on. There's things I'm working on with other writers, um, you being one of them. Uh, but yeah, I think in terms of specifics, certainly I think we could use a little bit more fiction. Uh, so I'm interested in hearing from people who might have ideas in that area. And uh, artwork too, because it, the last one, we were very lucky uh, Jim Pearson at Dan Curtis Productions sort of opened his uh, his vaults and found some nice stuff. Uh, but I, I, I'd like to sort of try and do something that's a little more of an illustrated experience. Who knows? Maybe we'll maybe we'll achieve that. Maybe we won't. But I'd like to give it a go. So I'd certainly be interested in uh, hearing from fan artists and yeah, you know, the more the merrier. And also, if you you have a good features idea. You know, it's an open, uh, my door is open. Wonderful. Uh, there there are some uh, fantastic fan artists out there uh, and uh, fanfic writers too. Uh, some who were active back in the uh, old school fanzine days and are still active and I'm sure could uh, could submit some, some interesting pieces to you. Uh, where can you uh, send the... You can email me at colinwood80 at gmail.com and I can send you, there's uh, a sort of guideline document that just explains in more specifics uh, pointers and format and word counts and things like that. But, you know, I'm interested in having a conversation with anyone who has an idea and wants to talk. Um, and certainly some really good stuff has come that way. Mm-hmm. I, I'm hoping that by the end of this week, you can give us some a little teases of what's what we can yeah, maybe expect. But but um, issue one, I mean, it was a, a big success. Um, so it was a charity zine. Uh, and how much money was raised for Macmillan Cancer UK uh, from this first issue? So we ended up doing two printings. Uh, there was a sort of the initial big printing. Then we did a smaller one that was more done to let people who'd missed out get it. So the yield on that wasn't great because it was a much smaller run. But in all, it ended up being just over $1,000 and it would have been a bit higher if we had a post increase halfway through. So the run fell a bit awkwardly. But uh, I think that was a pretty respectable return. And so it was a good cause. And I know they they appreciated it. And uh, I'd hope this time around we could do a little bit higher. Is, is it going to be the same charity for this issue? Uh, no. Uh, mm-hmm. We're doing partnership there's a there's a partnership with one of the Dark Shadows actors who's working on something quite special. And so they'll be, uh, in due course, we'll announce a charity with them. And I think it's probably going to be split with one other to be decided. But oh. that's probably also going to be a cast member. Oh, wonderful. Good. It's, yeah, it's great that cast members are enthusiastic about this and involved. Uh, in the first issue, uh, you had um, a wonderful, heartfelt article by Catherine Lee Scott about her friend Mitchell Ryan, uh, the late, great yeah, Mitchell that was Ryan. Terrific. I was really, really pleased with that. I think it's a really just a gorgeous piece of writing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, you had a couple of great uh, pieces, too. We had one by Laura Parker, a day, uh, day at the studio, uh, where she broke it down and what that was like. An interview with Nancy Barrett, a rare interview with Nancy Barrett, because she, she doesn't do a whole lot of those, but that was really cool. Can we expect a more actor uh, involvement in terms of uh, articles and interviews and issues? Yeah, a little bit. Um, there's a couple of things. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of interested in trying to find different ways to involve people. Mm-hmm. So one of my reasons for doing a second issue is uh, there was one idea I had uh, after the first one was done that sort of it's a kind of actor collaboration that I don't think's really been done before. And I sort of told myself if we could pull that off, that would be a good enough reason to do a second issue. And um, I was kind of surprised there was pleasantly surprised there was an awful lot of goodwill to make something that was a little bit complicated happen. And I think that will be really special mm-hmm. uh, in, in due course. It'll be pretty obvious what, what that feature is, but it's, I think it's really, I'm really pleased with that. It's a very sort of magazine thing that <laughs> uh, I hope people will um, get to take away something special from. And uh, yeah, I sort of, you know, I think we're kind of interested. It's interesting. The relationship certainly compared to, way back when, when I was doing this stuff, uh, I think the relationship between the actors and the fans has, has shifted appreciably. I think it's a much more, um, it's a much more collegiate 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a closer relationship, certainly, and it's it's really nice that people are are enthusiastic and very generous with their time, and actually, yeah, um, very accessible. And so, yeah, that's um. So there's some good there's there'll be some good actor input, which I think is really um, interesting. There's something else I'm working on. A couple of things I'm working on that will also hopefully involve some some other actors as well. So I think it probably there might be maybe half a dozen people involved mm-hmm. in different ways. Uh, and that's the other thing too is I'm sort of one of the things I was trying to do in the previous issue. I think I think worked relatively well was trying to find different ways to involve actors because I mean in some cases I've interviewed some of these people maybe half a dozen times and sure. you really probably not got much left to say to each other in, a, in terms of a standard interview. But for instance, um, getting Lara to talk for a studio day, that was just a, even though it's the most obvious magazine idea, you know, a day in the life is the most obvious magazine format in the book. I'd never really seen it done for Dark Shadows. And I'd never seen the day and the actual sort of granular detail of making those shows broke down in that way. And Lara was really receptive and I think really got it and sort of got the human interest angle. So that I was very pleased with. Yeah. Um, and likewise, Catherine, uh, who wrote her piece on Mitch Ryan, which I mean, it was, it was sad circumstances, but I, I think she was uniquely placed to pay tribute to Mitch in a way that a straightforward obit feature really wouldn't have done. So yeah, it, it's it, that's an interesting aspect. It, it's sort of interesting to be sort of uh, dealing with actors much more of, as a sort of commissioning editor rather than sort of straightforward interviews, which would have been really would have been the way things were done in the past. Sure, but it, it's been done so much that it's it, it's great that you're finding new angles and new ways to include uh, these people and to tell their stories. Uh, and I find that to be a challenge as well with interviews on the podcast because I'm like, what am I, what am I going to ask them that they haven't been asked a hundred times before that they haven't been asked on the MPI uh, interviews. And that is a, that is a challenge, uh, but you've, you've successfully involved them in in various ways uh, so that people can see uh, different angles, different sides of things. I've never seen a full breakdown of the day as told by an actor before. So that was uh, fascinating. And uh, you, you did mention to me privately the issue two piece that you were referencing and that's, I've never seen that done before either. So that's going to be pretty uh, exciting, I think, for people to to see that. Um, you also interviewed Matt Hall, a really substantial interview with Matthew Hall, which was really cool and uh, really nice to hear from him as well. Yeah, that was great. I really liked that piece. Matt was a um, really interesting guy. And I liked, it was the kind of, that's sort of, there's a nice thing you can do in long form interviews. I'm sure you, you find it with your podcast as well. The having the space to talk beyond the obvious things. So the stuff I really liked in that interview was the, you know, Grayson's cooking, uh, yes. all of that sort of domestic detail that I think is at this point, I, I think is much more interesting and much more illuminating and makes mm-hmm. her come to life as a person again, in a way that we can watch the episodes. You can, I, th- I think we, Although they're, they're, they're obviously still interesting. I, I'm, I'm not sure they're illuminating at this point in that way. Because I think we've all formed our opinions of them. Whereas, uh, yeah, I loved hearing about Grayson's cordon bleu cooking courses that weren't finished and all of that stuff. Right. And his um, also about his, his father, Sam Hall, and how, you know, we had always heard the story that Sam had suggested to uh, Dan Curtis that they kill off Julia and Dan refused to do that. But it was interesting hearing Matthew Hall's angle on that and your question, like, how do you think that would have gone down at home? You know, so it's uh, provided some interesting insights. No, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of the interview aspect is interesting at this point because having not really done uh, nowadays, I do quite a lot of interviews for sort of journalism pieces for other shows, and I think I'm well. I don't think I am, in, you know, immodestly. I'm a better interviewer at this point, just because I've done it a lot more. I'm not, mm-hmm. um, so I think, and, I, and I've also got more of a an opinion on what I think makes a good interview, the kind of things I want to hear from these people. So yeah, it's been interesting to redo that. And there's again, there's this, there's an interview I'm hoping will come off that. I'm going to make it happen. I, I think that will be an interesting conversation. A lot of it is sort of finding someone you think will be receptive to a certain type of 
discussion and then if you're lucky that's the conversation you get back so for instance nancy barrett who was uh for various reasons took a long time to tee up but i really felt that the it, it needed a big interview to ha- anchor it and she was the she was just the person i wanted i just felt she was the she had the right position in terms of her her tenure on the show she's really she's the only person we have who spans the entire run there's no one else left at this point she's also i'd read other interviews with her and i sort of liked her i liked her take on things i liked her i thought she she had a sort of there was a perceptive quality that i thought would give some interesting stuff and so and that was so that was a really good conversation it was definitely worth hanging on to make happen so absolutely yeah so yeah that's uh that, all of that's all of that i think is that's yeah. been an inter- that's definitely been an interesting aspect of revisiting revisiting doing a dark shadows publication for sure yeah and um i mean we've been talking about interviews but there are so much more uh beyond uh, the interviews you had a lot of great articles in there about dark shadows uh for example um i loved Ansel Farage's article about uh, classic horror cinema that may have influenced Dark Shadows storylines. Uh, Ansel, of course, is very, uh, you know, immersed in in that world. So he had some really great movies that he that he called out there. Although I did message him, I said, I think Plague of the Zombies was a stronger influence on Dark Shadows zombies than Night of the Living Dead because Plague of the Zombies came out in uh, sixty six and it was more like the traditional voodoo zombies and got a gothic horror film. But um, his, uh, I love that he called out Cabinet of Doctor Caligari too, which I hadn't thought of before for Quentin Zombie because it does kind of look like Cesare when he's carrying uh, Rachel Drummond uh, in the mist and everything. Uh, yeah, that was another thing I really wanted to do with the features, which was to. Mm-hmm. You know, without being too didactic or sort of trying to patronisingly educate people, but to sort of look outwards from Dark Shadows and use Dark Shadows as a springboard to talk about other things, which I think sometimes there's a danger... there's a danger with this stuff. You know, if you're going to do a whole magazine talking about one TV show, mm-hmm. Dark Shadows is a broad church. There's an awful lot of aspects one can talk about. But if everything looks inward, I think, yeah. I think you it reveals less. I think actually the more you, so for instance, going back to interviews, one of the reasons I really wanted a human interest aspect is because I think if you understand people in their workplace, you understand their work better, you understand how they were operating and likewise to place dark shadows within a, I guess, a creative lineage or heritage apart from, I think, I think you can come away with a new appreciation of the episodes. Uh, I hope it encouraged people to yeah. check out some of those films. I've checked out a few of them and got got stuff out of them. And, and again, I just think it, it just hopefully it deepens people's interests. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of human interest, you have also had Mary O'Leary write a piece about Jonathan Frid, uh, which was really great, too. The, yeah, the whole yeah. Jonathan Frid thing was kind of interesting because it was, I mean, that was literally a feature we couldn't have done back in the day. Definitely not. It was, yeah. It was hung on, it, it, it really uh, was centered on Jonathan's uh, sexuality, which was not, well, I guess it was probably open knowledge. It certainly it wasn't on the record. And I felt there was a space to, I hadn't read something that I felt was a really good response to that documentary in sense of not that it, it needed the final word on it, but I think just to, take it beyond uh, beyond Jonathan's life and actually place that within our understanding of Barnabas as, uh, as a character and how that informs him. And I thought uh, Joy Robinson, who wrote it, did a really good job of that and um, yeah. yes. uh, her own uh, her own take, take on it. But also, I think, really went into the episodes in an interesting way and touched on other Dark Shadows cast members and... And then Mary's piece was uh, interviewing Mary was a really nice counterpoint to that to you know give a direct you know someone who actually knew Jonathan so uh, that was a really interesting piece and I was really pleased to do that because it did feel yeah I felt like I mean it's not I wouldn't say it's a radical piece or anything particularly contentious but it's just something that wouldn't have been possible say mm-hmm. ten years ago. Right, exactly. Yeah, you never would have seen something like that in the uh, in the old fanzine days. 
I'm glad you brought back the print fanzine, not only because it's a gorgeous zine, but it's it includes content like that that we wouldn't have seen before and and new takes on things. Uh, and I, I will give a shout out uh, my friend Rachel Freitas, who uh, listeners, longtime listeners, I've heard heard her in episode three talking about Laura the Phoenix. She wrote uh, the comparison between Dark Shadows and Port Charles, uh, and she was absolutely ecstatic that that was published in the in the zine she that was her dream article she always wanted to write a piece about dark shadows and port charles and she really she did a great job on that too again that was sort of interesting in a sense because i i'd heard of port charles but it was, mm-hmm. it was shown here so I, I i didn't have any other than knowing it was a thing that had happened for a bit and then went off the air i didn't really know anything about it but i, yeah. I thought that was interesting as a kind of case study could you do a modern Dark Shadows? And there was briefly around that time some interest from Fox Daytime about doing yes. Dark Shadows of the Daytime Soap, which didn't really go anywhere. I don't think yeah. it really ever went further than, a, you know, the barest of discussion. But, uh, you know, that's a, a, poss- a possible window into how it might have fared and how it might have had to operate in the marketplace at that time. So that was, again, that just felt... Again, it's something that I couldn't have done 10 years ago. Well, certainly not when I was doing the original fanzine. So that was, again, it was, um, those are the sort of things you're looking for because they're a reason to actually sort of hop back on the bus. One one thing that piqued my interest years ago that I read, uh, in addition to that Fox daytime uh, pitch, the animated HBO Dark Shadows for for adults that like the night. I uh, do you know anything about that? Because that was referenced in one of the pomegranate. Other than books. other than that, it was a cons- in consideration. There was also I mean there were lots of the strange thing is even though obviously really nothing came of pretty much any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a continual trickle of interest to do Dark Shadows in some form. Fremantle who. You know, they're big in the soaps business in uh, Europe and uh, Australia, particularly. They they investigated Dark Shadows for a time in the, the, the early noughts or late 90s, I forget when it was. Uh, there was there was a syn- the idea of doing a syndicated series in Canada that uh, I think Manny Koto, who died recently, the Star Trek guy, was uh, involved in, did some development on. So there was... Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that it's almost it almost feels inevitable that it would resurface at some point, just because if it's part of the conversation for that long, then that probably means eventually something will stick. Right. Um, speaking of which, great segue because you had a really nice piece by Mark B. Perry about uh, Dark Shadows reincarnation and his pitch. It was very compelling. Uh, and Mark is back at now that the writer's strike is over. Mark is uh, posting again about continuing his quest to bring uh, the Dark Shadows, the next generation uh, series here to television streaming. So I'm excited about the possibilities there. Who knows? Maybe it's time will come. Maybe so. Maybe so. Um, you also had some great uh, fan fiction by Laramie Dean, the delightful Laramie Dean who I've had on this podcast. And he's he is a trip. He's a lot of fun. And he wrote a really great piece about we talked about it when he was on here. The, the many Angeliques, the, the many versions of Angelique. Uh, great, great fiction. Yeah, that was fun. I think I can't how that came about. I think I'd sort of mentioned to him that I'd been interested in this idea that because of a fluke in the continuity, there are clearly two angeliques mm-hmm. living in the present day concurrently yeah. that he could do something with that and he and he just all went away and ran with it and it was great and that was great fun and he's written a piece for the new uh issue which is oh good uh, so uh spiky and offbeat and i think <laughs> uh very enjoyable although it's going to be a challenge to illustrate because it's got a sort of it's got a it's got a nice twist and I'll, it'll be interesting to see how you do how you illustrate that and don't give it away but okay okay oh we'll interesting interesting i told i was talking to laramie when he was uh here i don't know if you know uh donald donald f glute don glute he worked for gold key did uh, the occult files of dr specter and then he he wrote the novelization for the empire strikes back he's done a lot of uh written a lot he's a writer uh wrote for a lot of animated transformers and all that kind of thing uh and he wrote a book called the dracula book and he recently reissued it with additional material and he, he he's a big dark shadows fan and he wrote an article about Angelique and his theory on um, Angelique's timeline. And it did involve two Angeliques existing at the same time. Uh, so it, it, it makes sense. I mean, it 
it does because her timeline certainly doesn't make sense. So <laughs> yeah, that was a good fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also really enjoy the um it's a lot of fun humor in the in the issue. And that's something I always loved about the fanzines, is it they had some really serious like the Warren Watson type articles that were great. And I love those those essays and you had the fan fiction and but there was always there were, was also some humor in the mix. And that's always fun to see, you know, the, the cartoons by Sherlock back in the world of dark shadows and things like that. Uh, and I, I love that you included things like that. I like I definitely want to join Quentin Collins Groovy Werewolf Club. I'm waiting for my membership card to to arrive. Do, do you do you <laughs> do you actually like become a werewolf or are you just part of the like cheerleading Quentin's werewolf activities? I don't know. I think you strangle your nearest and dearest. That's and right. That's right. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the humour, I, I mean, that's sort of, I kind of, a lot of those pieces were actually the, the first things done because it's mm-hmm. quite easy to kind of think of a dumb gag and just, you know, put together a page around it. Yeah. So I quite like those things. And I like, uh, and I think they're, I like the variety of them as well. And I think they buy, they give you license that you can be quite earnest and in depth about other things because then you'll turn the page and there's something that's a little, little oasis of silly counterbalance yeah nice i I love the gold key i'm not the gold key the dan ross uh satire (laughs) oh my god that was just spot on nailed it (laughs) but again those kind of things i i I, I, the thing i like about again with those i think you can uniquely do with a magazine you know good magazines are like being part of a club it's Mm -hmm. being with like-minded individuals and even if you don't entirely get the references i think you get the shape of the joke so Mm -hmm. and i kind of you know i like the specificity of them i don't i think the the more specific and idiosyncratic you go the funnier it is and uh so yeah hopefully we'll we'll find some more pieces like that yeah hopefully so i I love the um also the comic uh, that was done in like an Edward Gorey style. Uh, I hope to see more cool artwork like that. And that stories. was great. Yeah, that was Brett Hurtholz, who um, he had done years and years ago. He did a comic adaptation on his blog of just a few, it was just a few pages of The Night Whispers, which was a big Finnish script I'd written. Mm-hmm. And he did and he did it in that style. And it stuck in my mind and uh, was friends on Facebook. And I sort of said to him, would you be interested in doing comic strip? Just thinking about that. And I wasn't sure what it should be. And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I sort of said to him, well, what characters do you want to draw? And he gave me uh, Roger, Maggie, Nicholas and Barnabas. And so I sort of dashed off a funny idea and he fleshed it out and did a lovely, lovely job with it. But yeah, yeah I love Again, I like I like the idea that it's just um, you can play with form, and I think it's good to go. You know, you you might hopscotch from you know an essay to an interview to something more discursive to something silly to a comic strip to a prose story, yeah. or like Ma- Madeline's uh, Lego uh, Dark Shadows. Yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that, which is just uh, I think there's a sort of series of unexpected things, and uh, yeah, a lot of I put a lot of work into ordering and reordering the pages because I wanted the those gear changes to be as hopefully as surprising and offbeat and charming as you can make them. Yeah. Uh, and it was exciting to see uh, some some familiar names in there, uh, podcast listeners that I hear, hear from, Carol Sardo and Patty Carapinar, who did the great Julia Medallion. She sent me one of those in the mail and it's it's gorgeous. Uh, she's brilliant. Lots of lots of really, really cool things that I'm, I'm and I'm also thrilled uh, that you're heading this up because your graphic design work, in addition to your writing, is really sensational and really compelling and beautiful to look at. Just when you release that image for issue two, I said, oh, God, that, that is beautiful. I hope you use that for the cover. It's, of the Yeah, it's going to be the cover. I'll, I'll send you I'll send you something later that it's been adapted a little, but you can tell me what you think. I've got another idea to how I'm going to use it. But <laughs> Yeah, I, the, the covers the covers are sort of interesting because I, I I was very uh, fortunate. I mean, Jim Pearson was really helpful with photography. Mm-hmm. Was you know very happy to give me more or less anything I wanted, uh, which is great, uh, obviously. But I, I wanted to use the photography a little bit differently, so quite specifically, didn't use narrative shots. Epi- what we call episodics, which is uh, you know scenes played out being played out so what i wanted was stuff that either showed a behind the scenes aspect or was a kind of what you call a setup so that like the cover shot where it's a posed scene that doesn't exist but 
is sort of meant to galvanize what the show is about. And I, those, I think they, cause they have their own sort of ambience and they're sort of dark shadows times 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was a, the sort of way to go with the photography. And, and one of the things I did that was, again, I thought was kind of cute was to find out the dates all these pictures were taken. And so pretty much all the captions had the, the day of the week and, when it was, which um, again is a little wrinkle, but I think it's it sort of anchors things to a time and a place much more. Yeah, and uh, Rob uh, Sacone, whose uncle was a cameraman on Dark Shadows, he also shared some of his uh, pictures, which um, I'm I'm thrilled uh, to this day that uh, that his uncle was, you know, gave him which those. Contain a mystery. Uh, yeah. I noticed when I was looking at the dates, uh, Donna Wandry's in the back of one of them, or appears yes. to be. My guess but is she just after came. she left the show. But it, the interesting thing is, it's the end of the year. I think it's either it's either just before Christmas. No, it's not. It's the thirtieth. It's something like the thirtieth or the thirty-first. Mm-hmm. And it was the last taping of the year. And I wonder if there was some some gathering or something going on that day. And that's the reason she's there at the studio. Yeah, it's, I mean, she's left the show. So mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, who knows? Uh, I I believe. Jay Nass was, I think it's Jay Nass, the, the studio kid who took a lot of photos. He was there that day and he has pictures of her in that outfit on that day doing other things like in one of the bedrooms, standing by the bed and stuff. Maybe she just came to visit. Who knows? You know, who knows? Maybe she came to collect something. But yes, it's after she left the show. So that's an mystery. Um, or maybe she wanted to learn a little bit about the behind the how to how to things work from it. I should have asked her. I inter- work in the new year. Who knows? Yeah. I should have asked her. I interviewed Donna Wandry recently. I was at uh, Seaview Terrace and I, she was there and I, I uh, interviewed her, but she, uh, I'm sure she wouldn't remember. <laughs> like, why were you there that one day 50 plus years ago? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, um, those, those pictures are terrific. I really like the, um, just the, uh, I think they sort of capture the ambience of the studio wonderfully. So they were yeah. great. They were terrific. It's just incredible that things continue to turn up uh, all these decades later, new new things that we just hadn't seen before. That's always exciting when that happens. So you not only design this beautiful uh, zine, but you also, I, I, I hesitate to call it a zine because it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's like a book, but you also wrote some wonderful things in here, including a great piece about uh, the Leviathans, the, the, the place where Dark Shadows bent the knee to the fans and uh, and it was all over from there. Tom, you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was a little bit of a parlor game, really, as a way of, I mean, I'm not sure a single episode can really break a soap, but I think it is a really interesting turning point. And it's kind of, I find it sort of fascinating that um, the Dark Shadows was this sort of evolving thing that I, I don't think anyone was in control of, including the people who, in theory, thought they were in charge. And it's it, it sort of... It's almost like a gambler's mentality. You know, Dan rolls the dice and Curtis, the creator, rolls the dice two or three times and reinvents the show. And there's no reason why suddenly making it sci-fi should have, uh, you know, shouldn't have worked. But the audience collectively just seemed to, they weren't buying it. And it's kind of really, I think it's really, really interesting because once you, it is sort of like a, a, uh, you know, a, a lucky streak. Once you once you lose it and you lose your nerve, it's it's kind of over. So yeah, that was that was kind of an interesting way of exploring some of the ways in which the show was put together and run, yeah. and possibly to its detriment and also uh, to its benefit. At times. Absolutely, yeah. He, I mean, they did listen a lot to what the fans liked. You know, even his own daughters, what who they thought was cool and wasn't cool, and and all of this. So I, I mean. Just the very idea of doing H.P. Lovecraft on daytime television is in the in 1969, 1970 is bananas. I just the thought of doing it. And I'm sure it was difficult. I mean, Dan was an enthusiast. He liked that stuff. But it, I'm sure it was probably challenging for, uh, you know, Sam Hall and Gordon Russell to, to kind of wrap their heads around the whole Lovecraft, you know, Dunwich Horror, Eldritch beings who held sway over the earth before and i thought it was cool it was something really different the interesting thing is though there were sort of amidst that sort of course correction midway through they probably Mm -hmm. hit on what the leviathan should have been all along because initially they are unambiguously aliens who are going to breed a new that's going to and they're going to take over the world great if you go guys (laughs) 
By the time we then get to sort of December 69, they are a cult and they're described yeah. as a cult and they're a cult that worships this alien. And I kind of wonder if this is all tied to the Manson family stuff because the arrests oh, happen around that time and suddenly they're talking about, you know, weird cults doing things and, you know, yeah. I, I wonder in a sort of zeitgeisty way if that was sort of feeding into it somehow because it seems yeah. it's a really, because it's such a specific word. It's not a word Dark Shadows had used before. It wasn't in the Dark Shadows lexicon before then. So, yeah, there's something very odd about that, but possibly this idea that it's more like a kind of super te- supernatural protection racket yeah. which there's a sort of glimmer of with the stuff with Paul Stoddard and that feels more like a sort of viable way you could plug all that into a soap right and I think uh, bringing in Nicholas probably to put it into some sort of context because I, I don't think people I think people are having a difficult time understanding what that what the Leviathans were so putting it well bringing, got a sort of, this sort of again is sort of it feels sort of like it's not correctly inputted, you know, if it's like a, an almost an algebraic equation, it's not inputted correctly into the yeah. soap. Whereas, you know, ideally you kind of want a leader and someone to talk to. It would make so much more sense if Megan and Philip have just moved to Collinsport and being nice antique dealers is a front where yeah. they're actually Leviathan agents quite willingly and, yeah. you know, um, not what you call it, zealots. Yeah, yeah. Long, and we, you sort of play the wrinkle of them being sort of bland and suburban, yeah. and actually they're sort of, yeah. you know, it's black candles behind curtains. Right. And when we we t- we should clarify when we talk about course correction and bending the knee, uh, uh, Stuart is referring to the uh, emergency episode of the show. So for context, um, uh, the Leviathan story is kicking off at the end of 1969, and it's. It's been going for some weeks, probably about six weeks, and it's not going terribly well. And then they get to December, and on Christmas Eve, so literally the last moment before the Christmas break, before you go into the new year, more or less, they they record an emergency episode, which is inserted into the sequence. And there's already about three weeks of shows that have been banked and are going to air through mm-hmm. uh, through to January. So it's a really... Um, it's really an odd, unprecedented thing to do. Quite as a piece of sort of chicanery behind the scenes, quite, you know, quite high concept and quite ambitious, and it probably works better than it's got any right to. But it has sort of weird things like Michael Maitland comes back to play Michael, the sort of the Leviathan kid. He'd left the show. They were they were way they were into I don't, possibly. I'm not sure. Chris, I guess Chris Pennock must have started by then. But yeah, they got him back for a day and they insert the show that is there and it's reframing stuff and, you know, don't believe what everyone's saying to you for the next three weeks because it all means something different. And it kind of what's interesting about it is it breaks a contract. At least that's my 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 sort of my sort of the, the, my thesis I put forward was that it breaks a contract with the audience that and all soaps operate on that contract. And when you break the, the trust of your audience and you lose it, you don't get it back. And I think arguably, although, as I say, it's a bit of a parlor game to make a point, but I think arguably it's a long climb back. It would have been a long climb back for Dark Shadows after that. Yeah. And you you point to this, you know, listening to your audience, the pros and cons of that, because there were so many, there were different audiences for Dark Shadows, right? I I like talking about this sometimes on the podcast because you have the soap opera fans, but you also have the horror fans, like the monster kids reading famous monsters of Filmland. You have the 16 magazine Tiger Beat teeny bopper fans who are really into the actors, et cetera, who have the kind of the stoners in college watching. Uh, So you have all these different audiences who all are perhaps interested in in different aspects of the show. So I think listening too much to one particular group of people. Well, there's a sort of danger, isn't there, that Mm -hmm. um, the the minute you sort of go down that road, the the most vocal voices... In some ways, they're the they're the audience that's most locked in. They're the ones who are most likely to watch Come Hell or High Water. Now, perversely, they're also the ones who are most likely to complain. Yeah, I'll put it to you. Therefore, they're the ones you should listen to least. But I'm I'm not a, I'm not a soap producer looking at the looking at the ratings chart, sort of mm-hmm. uh, falling downwards. So I I can sort of understand it. And I think with with Dark Shadows, it was very difficult because it was a a very fragmented audience which in some ways is what made the show interesting. I think it also made it somewhat unsustainable. And I think it made it, particularly with the teen audience, I think the things 
that people don't really consider is that that massive summer in 69, it coincided with the school holidays. Yeah. So there was always going to be, you were always going to go into that story and have a slump ratings wise because the kids were going back to school. Right. So that, and that no one really talks about that as a contributing factor, but it was clearly there. You, yeah. you also have the really, you, you've got a sort of juvenile audience, which by its nature, they're quite faddish. They're also growing up really fast. So if you were yeah. sort of 15, should we say, and watching the show in 67, by the time it's going off the air, you're 19. And I know, I'm not convinced there was necessarily a second wave of young viewers coming in. I think it was probably, and that, this is not unique to Dark Shadows, and it's what happened with things like Batman and uh, a lot of those sort of Irwin Allen shows. It's why they kind of tended to burn through two or three years and then, uh, you know, were on the wane. And people did talk all the time about Dark Shadows being a fad show. Mm-hmm. which I think was true. I think it could have been engineered into something a bit more long-term. I think arguably what they were doing in 71 parallel time, which is sort of making it into a show about somewhat through circumstance because lots of people are off making the movie, but for about six weeks, it's a show about attractive people with too much money making problems for themselves, which is really what soaps became in the 70s. Right. And, and, and a, lo- a haunted lottery room. Yeah, just <laughs> with uh, yeah, with you know some supernatural um, stuff around the edges, but possibly that's what the show could have segued into. And I think there was it wasn't so much that none of these things would have worked, but I don't think there was anyone really grasping the nettle and saying, "Okay, this is what we're going to make this show," and we are probably going to lose some viewers in the process, but that's what you need to do. It can't be trying to be four or five different things for four or five different audiences in the present tense, which is, I think, kind of what ha- you know happened. And it sort of happened. Weirdly, it sort of happens in '68, but they they kind of they use that flashback to 1897 as a kind of very successful uh, soft reboot. Yeah. And make and create a sort of more simplified, viable version of the show because although there is a sort of um, farcical amusing aspect to just how crazy and kooky the the tail end of 68 is it's pretty you know there's a lot of stuff that i think is objectively terrible well it's and it just ends it's just just, yeah it's just just like oh bye adam see ya (laughs) there's so much of that where there are just things where you can just tell people are just uh, are just tearing out pages and yeah, calling it quits. So yeah, well, yeah. although I did like the lead up. Well, after coming out of the way, the Adam storyline wraps up is just kind of just, the Adam Eve stuff. It just and, implodes, and then but I like the Quentin ghost and werewolf. Uh, that, that's definitely more successful for sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, the bit that I think it is possibly the single well, depending on your mileage, it's either the single worst or best episode of Dark Shadows is the one where, and it, it is just. It is burn the house down, not quite literally, but almost where they're, they're going to revive Eve and then oh, she yeah. turns into a skeleton and then Nicholas is chased to a cliff and he bursts into flames for reasons I'm not quite sure. And it's got everything in the kitchen sink and nothing lands. <laughs> it's but it's Except kind of for Barnabas chilling smile. It is kind of entertaining and <laughs> absurd and cherishable in its own way. Oh, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. I, every storyline in Dark Shadows. I always find something to love. The thing I wanted to ask, coming out of 1897, I had always heard these rumors about the idea that they they pitched a mummy storyline. And I'd never found any verification of that until you mentioned that you had actually seen something to that effect. I don't know if it was. There, is, there is something in a fan letter and who knows? I mean, it, yeah. it may have been something heard in a whisper at a studio door or mistranscribed or misunderstood. I mean, it certainly doesn't seem to have had any serious right. consideration. Um, I'm always curious about things that were potentially planned that never saw the light of day in the show, like storylines or story ideas that they were going to try to do. The interesting thing is with Dark Shadows, because there really wasn't a lot of planning. Right. Yeah. They're only working, you know, they're two weeks ahead in script terms and then a week, a week and a half ahead in storyline terms, which again, is not how soaps work. I mean, most soaps. 
yeah. three months ahead at least, if not six. But just those writers meetings I, with Dan Curtis, uh, I can just imagine even Dan Curtis with the, with like Sam Hall and, and Gordon Russell and other writers, Violet Wells or or Joel They Caldwell. sound extraordinary. And what's really clear would, is that whatever yeah. you thought the story was that morning, by the time you sort of stagger out <laughs> to get the last train home when it's all over, it's no longer that. And the show is doing something completely different. And again, I think you can watch the shows and I think sometimes you can you can tell it's mm-hmm. it's about something different than it was two weeks ago and that can uh, in some ways that means there's never a dull moment in other ways it can sometimes mean there's just no connective tissue um, right right and particularly for soaps i think the status quo aspect is really important and i think that's something that first year of the show really has and really mm-hmm. benefits from and i think you really miss it once it's gone in a sort of low frequency way it's not like it suddenly becomes unwatchable and often it's brilliant but I think you never have that sort of sense of what the rules are of the community, who knows what about whom. Everything, the, the world becomes literally smaller. You can, yeah. you, you or I can walk back to Collinwood or to the Blue Whale and it, it, it takes five seconds. In the early right. days, it's the event when those worlds cross. Yeah. And they never quite regain that and it's never quite as, I don't think, creatively, I don't think it's ever quite as pure again. Right. Yeah. Good observation there, Stuart. Although we could say the trade-off is that the show becomes more exciting and unpredictable. Speaking of exciting, what so what what can we I you've you've dropped a few hints about issue two and any more that you care to drop or contributors or is or is it a mystery? Well, well, uh, yeah. we've got quite a lot of people who contributed to the first issue contributing again, which is nice. Um we have uh there's a feature from you, which you you should know. <laughs> really? <laughs> what? which is about merchandise and i think we've got kind of an interesting visual treatment that will look at merchandise in a slightly different way which will be hopefully quite charming uh we've got there's something you've had steve shot on your yeah yeah i know steve yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, he's a friend yeah so steve Many, many years ago, uh, I think I worked it out, it's 26 years ago, wrote something for the old fanzine that never got used. And I remember this piece, and I remember thinking it was the best thing. It, it was a really great piece, it was the best thing that never got published, and I felt a bit bad about it. And I went to him and I said, I remember this piece you wrote, and could you... Do you remember it? Could you be, because obviously we're talking a quarter, over a quarter of a century. I said, could you, would you be interested in revisiting? He said, no, I've got it. And obviously, you know, we've uh, bounced it about a little bit, uh, the idea of it. And I wouldn't hold him to his opinions, however earnest or heartfelt from that long ago, but he's going to revisit that. So that feels like it's writing a little cosmic wrong. Right. And uh, what else have we got? We have, what can I tell you? Um, I think there's going to be another comic strip, I hope. Right. And, cool. uh, it'd be, it's not being written by me, it's by someone else. And I think that that someone is really interesting. Uh, and I hope they have time to do it. They say they have, and they've never let me down before. So fingers crossed. And Mark Perry is going to write another piece, which I think is quite an interesting I think it's a sort of interesting aspect of Dark Shadows that I think he's going to have some good opinions on, or some, uh, you know, some opinions that will, that will be interesting to read for sure. And yeah, we're doing. And um, Jim Pearson and I have been discussing a sort of historical research, sort of deep dive piece that. Uh, yeah, credit to Jim. He wrote. He came actually very late in the day when the issue was being finished and had found this. The, the previous issue, sorry, uh, and have found this um, requisition doc for the for the way the, the crew was broken down. It's just and and it was just kind of interesting. And I sort of said to him, "Well, that is interesting, but no human being can make head nor tail of it. Could what could can you help me caption it or something?" And actually, Jim got really interested, and in so he interviewed Michael Brockman, who was the the unit manager on the show, uh, and is sort of a grand old age, but. Uh, still active and kind of compass mentis. And so they went through this thing uh, in some detail. Yeah. And Jim wrote a really, I think, a really good piece that, again, was um, had lots of information I didn't know about. And I was... It was um, awesome. It was great. Yeah. Uh, and that was really nice. And so, yeah, we've been talking about something else that's an aspect of Dark Shadows production that I, I feel has been glossed over. Uh, and when I put it to him, he agrees it's been glossed over. And I think he's going to, it's going to be another sort of collaboration with Michael and possibly we'll see maybe some other people. 
uh, for insights. But yeah, that'll be fun, I think. Um, I'm quite interested. I'm interested to see uh, what he finds out. Oh, that, so. that'll be great. Yeah, I'm really excited uh, about that. Very, very cool. But, yeah, in essence, it's going to be, I don't think, too different from the previous issue. It's going to be the same basic format. Um, it'll be two other, two different horribly clashing colors throughout. It will be probably a little few, we're going to try and make it a bit longer. The, the last one ended up being 130 pages. And you know, we might nudge, I think we can probably nudge this maybe 10 or so more without breaking the post barrier. So it'd be oh, nice good. to fill it out a little more if there's the material, which I think there will be. Um, so yeah, the more the merrier. And I, and I hope uh, fans will be uh, patient uh, because I did see there were some fans who were complaining that about delays. And like, this is a charity zine that Stuart is doing on his own time and his free time. He, he was a full-time job doing graphic design. So this is something that, uh, you know, he's labor of love kind of thing. So it, as you saw with the first issue, it, it did come eventually. So please, patience. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting that I think there is a bit of maybe I was a bit naive about it. I, I think there was a little bit of re-education almost required about what what a fanzine is and how it operates. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's just been a while and people just you know had sort of forgotten that or didn't know it to begin with. But um, you know, we're gosh, it would take you know it was exciting when we it was, get a, it, was a big, it was a sort of big undertaking and it, it, yeah. and that's and that's not me sort of bearing the cross uh, uh there was a, a lot of people put an awful lot of work into it and hopefully the reason why it was special is because for, or why people found it special we're not gonna tell you it was but you know everyone did try really hard to sort of make it the best it could be and that that takes time and yeah. hopefully, We'll we'll do the same again, and make, um, we can make it a little bit better. Besides, I'm really uh, looking forward to it. And again, Stuart is still uh, looking for submissions. You still have time uh, as of this recording. Uh, we're in October 2023, so this this will probably be going out in about a week. And uh, you you so you still have some time to submit your pitch to Stuart, if you, especially if you have fan art and fan fiction. I'll put a link in the show notes to the submission form or to the email. Can you say the email again, please, Stuart? Uh, yeah, it's colinwood80 at gmail.com. Cool. Oh, let me ask you this. Is there is there any chance that you will do a third printing of, of issue one or is issue one? Well, it's kind of, it, I think probably not because okay. we need to do it. Yeah, it's a minimum of a hundred, which mm-hmm. is uh, which was what the second printing was. And that was, and they did sell, uh, but there is sort of, I mean, there's issues of space. I don't, uh, it's space and just admin and things like that. So probably not, but but then again, if you'd have, uh, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago, I'd have said there wouldn't have been an issue too. And there probably wouldn't have been a reprint of issue one. So who knows, <laughs> maybe one day, but yeah, it, it's um, probably not practical. Okay. Well, instead of looking for a uh, reprint, we can look forward to uh, issue three, but let's, let's, let's talk about oh, that as well, it's later. It's life sentence now. Oh, I see. <laughs> That's not shadows. Yeah. Yep. What is it like, from a godfather? You try to get out, but they keep pulling you back in. All right, Stuart. Well, thank you so much uh, for, for joining me again and, and visiting with me here at uh, Terror at Collinwood and uh, definitely very excited about issue two of Daytime Gothic. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly vanished, for there will always be Terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.